This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsight owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. This is episode 66, and in today's episode, we're going to talk a lot about uh, transmission lines. Obviously, our co-host, Alan Hall, is an uh, electrical expert, um, electrical engineer, lightning protection, all that stuff. So be prepared to get real nerdy with us today on (laughs) electricity. And uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about something that's going to be a big growing concern. It's becoming a growing concern in all industries, which is hacking. Um, ransomware struck Invenergy, which is a big developer of, of wind sites and other uh, renewable energy. Um, they were subject to an attack recently, so we'll chat a little bit about that. And then obviously, as we get more and more wind farms online, a growing problem is going to be how do we transmit that power to the grid and where does it need to go? And do we have enough capacity in the transmission lines to get it there? So that's going to be our big topic for today. But before we get going, I want to remind you again, in the show notes of today's episode, whether you're on YouTube, iTunes, uh, Spotify, you'll find a link to subscribe to Uptime Tech News, which is just our new weekly email sent every Thursday morning. That's going to let you know, hey, we've got a new podcast. Here's what it's about. Here's our guest. Here's our topic. Here's uh, a clip from another show. Here's some other great wind energy news, always on the tech side of things, just right in your inbox. So if you're already a regular guest on the show or a listener of the show, thank you. And we think you'll really like our to-the-point, concise, not time-waster, very uh, upfront email. So sign up for that in the show notes. So, Alan, let's start today with Invenergy. They were hacked. They discovered the, the, the breach. And this wasn't a typical ransomware where they encrypted all their data. Really, it seemed like it was just an extortion attempt on their billionaire founder. And, of course, the guy was kind of just like, hey, here's the middle finger. We're not paying you, and you're not going to extort me. But this is a scary thing, and I'm sure, um, you know, as our previous guest, Byron Martin from Technologize, who's a cybersecurity expert and an IT expert, um, as they mentioned in our podcast. So definitely check out that episode with uh, Byron Martin and Dan Morgan if you haven't. Um, this is going to become a bigger, bigger thing. Like the Colonial Pipeline was hit. You know, government agencies are getting hit. They could, I mean, Alan, could they take all, out a whole, you know, wind farm off the grid by some of this stuff? In theory, yeah, sure. All you need to do is disconnect certain switches and yeah, you can disconnect the whole the whole farm. It wouldn't take all that much. I mean, you can physically go down go down to the pole and disconnect it. But yeah, it's it's possible and it it raises a really good point which is and I hope more engineers are becoming aware of this because they're becoming more and more publicized these events and they're involving Bitcoin and transfers of millions of dollars and CEOs and presidents are getting involved. It's that we're at war right now, essentially. We're in a economic war. And instead of sending missiles across the water to 
do damage. What's happening now is you can just destroy infrastructure, um, put the whole East Coast without, or some significant portion of the East Coast without gasoline for several days. Mm-hmm. It's a, that's a big deal. And if we don't think about it as being in some sort of ongoing war, then we don't pay attention. And at some point, um, the level of urgency has to get stepped up on it because large portions of the grid can go out. And, and you know, obviously, right, you had the, the blackout in, or blackouts in New York City and how, what kind of havoc that has raised over time that were not related to any sort of cybersecurity. But in, in theory, there's a lot of weak pieces in a power grid. If you think it's just a very vulnerable system, there are some parts that are very hardened and then there's other parts that aren't as hardened. So how do cyber threats get to massive scales? They find those weaknesses that go through those little back doors and they weave their way in to a place where they can do a lot of damage. It's just the way it is. And as engineers, sometimes we're satisfied if the system just works right? It's just a little behind the scenes in engineering world. If the system does what it does and it's actually producing what it says it's supposed to produce and it meets all the specs, like cybersecurity is so far down on the list that it rarely gets in a lot of specs. It just doesn't because mm-hmm. we can reset it. We can reboot it, whatever, right? Well, we're becoming so dependent on computer technology and software and being interconnected and things happen in the cloud that you become vulnerable. You become vulnerable, and so your system may not work as it was intended, or someone else may be controlling it, which is a worst-case situation. And you can't bypass it because you're so dependent on other services, software services, to, to make your system go and work at peak efficiency. So it is a big, big deal. Well, and the thing that comes to mind is, I mean, you, you hear these ransoms, like it was in the Colonial Pipeline, I think it was like $4.4 million, right? And you're like, oh, man. And as a small business owner or a consultant or just any regular person, you're like, four, four, you know, that could put us out of business. However, you start to put it in in uh, relative terms with some of these fines. Like you remember a couple of years ago, Facebook paid a $1 billion fine by the FTC, was it? For, I, I can't remember exactly which practice, but like in discussing that on a bunch of different podcasts, they said, yeah, this was essentially a slap on the wrist for Facebook because they make a billion dollars in like 17 days or something like something crazy like that. So you start to think of these attacks being, you know, for some of these really big companies, $10 million from, you know, a, a company the size of GE or Siemens Gamesa or any of these with a 50, $100 million, $100 billion market cap. It's just like, all right, just get out of here. It's just like, you know, like you see lawsuits like that. I saw Apple had a lawsuit they settled recently for like, $5 million. That's literally nothing. They have a, maybe multiple billions in cash. It's like, all right, just here's a, here's, here's your $5, go get ice cream, you know, go about your business. But this is a real threat just as far as disruption. And they might start asking for more money and just... That's the bigger threat is a disruption. It's not so much the cash. Obviously, the cash is a big deal. And, and the, the way we can transfer, essentially transfer money electronically and encrypted, in theory, encrypted reality is probably not encrypted like we think that it is but if someone wanted to do real damage they could regardless if you're going to pay them or not the damage is already done right they have to inflict the damage to get you to write to transfer bitcoin over that's where the damage is and that's 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 the intent at least my opinion of some of these things is like the intent is to inflict damage and having if you pay attention and you watch what happens in 
sort of rivals with the United States, appears to me that <laughs> the United States is inflicting damage via software breakthroughs, all kinds of security breaches that America's doing, and then it gets returned to us and in the same way. So we are in an active cyber war. There's just no way of getting around that right now. We are. And you don't want to get wrapped up in it, right? You want to make sure your stuff is as hardened as it can possibly be, particularly if you're producing power and keeping the lights on for millions of homes. It's a big mm -hmm. deal. Well, and I'm a broken record talking about prediction errors and black swans. That's like, I don't know, I'm like a character that's uh, just broken. But, you know, you talk about 9-11, no one could have ever would ever have imagined something like that would have happened and it happened and it changed everything this pandemic changed everything hurricane katrina i mean it just changed everything in that town um and so you start to wonder could a ransomware attack shut down a million homes from power for multiple multiple weeks on the east coast like could they shut down new york city it's conceivable you know, like no one's it, like these things I would be shocked if you go 20 years from now as electrified and connected to the web that we are, that this doesn't happen. It's it's to some country at some point or some chunk of America. Like would you, with all this hacking technology, you don't think some bad actor in some other country wouldn't love to shut down a whole city in the U.S.? That I mean, imagine, I mean, you'd be a national hero of a, of a bad actor state, right? So you got to think that stuff is like is in the works and why i think it's it's scary to think that no one would ever imagine that their home could not have power for two weeks because someone just broke it but that could happen it absolutely could happen could shut down an airport airport easy i don't think that's even a question airports no problem at all the 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 more the grids become interconnected and and in my case, like in Massachusetts, a lot of my our power, my power, a lot of our power comes from Canada, right? So it doesn't even have to happen in in country. It could be an attack on a Canadian Quebec power plant that wipes out power to my home. And yeah, we could be without power for quite a while. And the the, the one of the keys to uh, minimizing that impact is be able to reroute power and deliver it via other means, right? And this is sort of the thing that happened in Texas with the freeze a couple of months ago was they don't... Yeah, they, no one could help them. Mm -hmm. No, because they don't let power lines cross the state boundaries because then the federal, the, the feds can come in and dictate the way they're going to run their grid. And they don't want the feds in there, so they don't do it. Same, that's the way Southwest Airlines used to be forever. Like Southwest Airlines only flew in Texas forever because they had working under not FAA rules, they were working under the Texas air regulation rules, whatever those were. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, the way we get around some of these things is make it so we can regroup, right? And get power where we need it to go. But it also in some ways can make it more vulnerable because it makes a lot of back doors. So, you know, there's, there's benefits and real downsides to all these things. And that's where when you watch uh, people test in front of Congress, it'll scare the living heck out of you because you'll have an engineer walk up there and go, yeah, oh, yeah, Los Angeles could be without power for a month. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like, yeah, what? Chaos. Like, yeah, exactly. What? What? I mean, uh, No, no, we, we, we can't let something like that happen. And why are we not working on it? Well, because we got 800 other things that we need to be working on. And that is, it's a low risk versus uh, 
some you know the wildfires for example right so that that's that's the issue is your the vulnerabilities still stay around because you got other problems that you've ranked higher and uh, when the big yeah. one hits the big one's going to hit and it's going to be painful well and there's also no reward so say no nope. say hypothetically gotham city well i didn't have to say hypothetically <laughs> when to use gotham city my brain was going to say new york city but say gotham city invests a billion dollars a year into protecting gotham city from this exact thing from sure. a cyber attack shutting them off and they never have a cyber attack people think they wasted that billion dollars whereas in right. reality maybe it actually worked but you don't get any you don't get any prizes and this is the big thing about these is like you don't get any prizes for preventing 9-11 if 9-11 never happened there's no heroes like oh this guy prevented the thing that never happened like it just doesn't compute in your brain and but I, once yeah, you know you can true. react to things and there's so people get rewarded for reacting to things and of course true. i'm not saying that as far as 9-11 like there were so many heroes who did amazing oh, things in 9-11 yes. i'm just saying you know when you can get paid to clean up a mess you know if you have a home restoration like my parents had some water in their basement you get paid to clean up the messes but you don't get paid nearly as much to prevent that damage in general right that's right that's right and that's so that's it's that's incentivizing right and and in the engineering circles it is one of these super frustrating things because you see it right you I mean you, we're not oblivious to the fact that there's huge downside risk on on systems that provide all kinds of functions to uh regular people and how how they can be really vulnerable and 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 mm -hmm. you look at sort of the government officials uh in any sort of natural disaster like why is the governor of california still the governor of california after the wildfires like what is that about <laughs> and after the COVID things but uh, obviously going to try to recall them but it looks like a pretty good chance it's going to be in office and so you're like well how much responsibility could he have had? Could he have taken steps to prevent mm -hmm. some of the, like the wildfires from happening? Yeah. I mean, we're in like year six or seven of these things. Are, are, are we not going to step in and like do smart things to prevent these from happening? Nobody knows. But yeah. if he comes in and they put all the forest fires out and homes are saved, it's, you kind of get this hero status where you still sort of culpable in that. That's that's where the you, you don't ever look backwards. You know, it's very hard to look backwards and go, "Hey, you, you knew that was a problem. You decided to ignore it, and now it bit you. So you, you're going to lose." But the losing part doesn't seem to happen at the, on the political level. It's weird. I think it happens on the engineering level quite a bit, but on the on the policy side, not nearly as much. Yeah. Well, and I know obviously with all these older wind farms, you know, they're 10, 15, 20 years old they are running on older software obviously they get upgrades right you know regularly yeah, sure. but there's still going to be if you took an inventory of all the wind farms in the u.s or all over the world there's going to be many that have you know five-year-old software or x you know this software that just has known <laughs> known security issues or just because it was it's five years old it's just not as secure as something today and there's going to be a, a sliding scale of risk depending on how current everything is and how patched up it is and how modern right. it is, right? I mean, right. you see this happen in, in, in like CRM systems. Like <laughs> I know just recently, um, one of the big CRM companies switched from like some authorization token thing that I don't understand to like some new way that's like way more secure. Like they're right. sending all these emails about it. And it's like, <laughs> are they doing that on all these like, you know, utility scale softwares and systems? And I don't know the answer to that, but those it. could all be vulnerable. Where like you said, with your California example and the, and their wildfires, well, what if 
these need to be upgraded slowly but surely now, and then they're not, and now cyber criminals realize this in five years, and they're just attacking all of them left and right. You're like, well, we should have, we should have started looking ahead five years ago, and upgrading these systems and really making them robust, because now they're just left and right getting attacked, and and that could be a thing. Well, in, in the engineering world, one of the things, one of the sort of cardinal rules is if it works don't mess with it right and so what happens like i'll give you the good example in engineering there's a lot of things working on windows 7 in this world which is crazy to think about uh all kinds of applications all kinds of useful tools all kinds of things that are running systems today are working on really outdated operating systems which microsoft doesn't su support anymore it doesn't provide security patches for <laughs> anymore but as the engineer like, it still works don't mess with it and who's going to hack into that thing? It's been sitting there operating for the last 15 years. No one's going to bother it. Yeah, but that's that's the back door to get into the rest of the system, yeah. right? That's the door to get into the rest of the network. And that's what happens. And so it's like it's everybody's, it's every engineer's responsibility, I think, in today's world to start looking back and go, hey, where are we really vulnerable? And that's where cybersecurity companies are really providing valuable, valuable data to regular engineers like me to say, guys, we need to take a look at what's going on and make sure we don't have vulnerabilities because we're just being curmudgeon-y a little bit and don't want to change the software, <laughs> which is what happened. The people who probably end up being more vulnerable are, like you said, in, over in Europe, there's more single wind turbine in a town or right. five or 10, those little yeah. clusters. Those ones where they're run by smaller companies or owned, you know, in part by a town or a co-op or something. Sure. Those are probably the ones who are like, they're not going to be at a spring for all those regular upgrades, maybe. Right. And maybe their turbine's 20 years old, but it's still kicking. So they're just yeah. getting, you know, free money. Essentially, it's paid off or they are, are there, you know, we talk about blades being no longer uh, like you can't get a new, you know, 1.7 <laughs> megawatt blade from X right. manufacturer because it's been discontinued because it's 15 years old. Right. They're not making right. that blade anymore, but nope. it's still working. But just like the blades, the software is old, like, eh, it's fine. Let's just let it keep going. Yeah. And now that gets hacked and now they get ransomed and it's $2 million and the thing's not worth $2 million. And you're like, but now we are losing all that power to our little town and our town's really suffering. I could see a lot more of those small, just like, again, just like targeting a small business where they don't have the $4.4 million that the Colonial Pipeline would have. Right. And now they become really crippled by it. Yeah. So you just hope that. I don't know, it's just gonna be a problem for every industry, but it could be a really complicated one for, for wind as well. Uh, looks like grids are gonna become more and more interconnected uh, in the future. So one project that's just been given like the go ahead as far as uh, they're gonna start construction soon is the Trans West uh, Express Transmission Project, which is gonna take wind power from Wyoming and it's going to feed it through Utah uh, all the way down to Las Vegas where it could power homes in um, Nevada, California and Arizona. So pretty interesting that I mean, I don't think that's something that people think about all that much like, oh, this wind wind farm in our town or in our state is sending power to somewhere completely far, you know, not our not our home state. Um, but that's probably pretty common, number one. And it's like you said, leading to the interco interconnectivity as far as grids, but Alan, what, what challenges does this pose as far as transmission? Like, are they losing power sending it so far? I mean, what, what's the electrical side of this? 
Well, there's a, there's a couple of real keys to, to power transmission. One is you need the, the, the right of way to put down transmission lines. So when you're going across state lines, the feds get involved. And there's a lot of oversight about where you can put transmission lines. You're going through local communities. Uh, and so there's a lot of planning involved. And that's, that's yeah, the most they, difficult part. They pull part. you over. They say, sir, do you have electricity in your trunk? I'm going to need you to step out of the car. I can smell. You've got too many amps in your trunk. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> but that, that's, that's the reality of it. it it's... You know, conceptually, from the engineering side, moving power from point A to point B, we've known that for 100 plus years. The real difficulty is getting the transmission lines in in places that uh, may have endangered species, or you may have to clear cut some areas because the trees are in the way or may grow too close to the power lines, or um, you got to go over mountaintops, or you got to, there are going to be places where there's a lot of snow. All, all those things, all those little small pieces to putting a power line in the middle of a state are, are, are some of the biggest costs uh, maintaining them, making sure someone's over there, making sure they're clear every summer and that they're chopping down trees that grow near them and inspecting them with helicopters and all the, all the things that happen there. It's not cheap to put in transmissions lines. That's why we don't do it that often. So to, to hear of a, a, a fairly large transmission line project go on as unusual. I know for a lot of wind turbine farms, they are located near tra big transmission lines, close to them. That's one of the, if you have good wind, but you're a hundred miles from the, the nearest tr big transmission line, it's all that infrastructure, you gotta pay for the hundred miles of transmission line to get from A to B just so you can plug into the grid. You don't want to do that because it adds a lot of extra costs and a lot of burden there. And that's and that's why you don't see them that often. And so when you do look at uh, where wind turbines are sited, that's one of the that's one of the issues. Can we plug in readily to the grid? So we don't want to put in transmission lines. It's it's a problem. It is a real problem in the States because you think as we become more electrified, with particularly with vehicles and batteries, you're gonna need more transmission lines. You just kinda need it. Where are you gonna go? Yeah. So what what is the the equation here? I mean, you know, in this there's an interesting article by Bloomberg just talking about the kind of the future of the grid and uh, some of these new high tech lines, the ultra high voltage direct current lines. Can you kind of take us through AC versus DC? I mean, what is the what are the considerations with voltage and amperage? I mean, what are some of the constraints that engineers have to work between to get this power? I mean, are these you know are these going to have to be tree trunk sized lines? I mean, like what modernization do we have to take to get power where it needs to go? Well, Tesla uh, and Edison fought this battle in the early 1900s, late 1800s. Uh, lost track now of how long ago that was. But the AC power is a lot easier to transmit over long distances. That's why it won out. Uh, DC is very lossy when you try, try to push it long distances more than a couple of miles it becomes lossy so lossy that you can't afford to do it and it takes a lot it can take a lot more copper in the lines to cut the losses down versus ac which you can use a lot less copper so there's there's a huge advantage from just a material standpoint simplicity standpoint to using um, ac power and that and that's why you know all countries 
today are all AC. Uh, there may be some small island somewhere that's working on DC, where the where the it's just a local community. You could have a DC grid, and that and that's what Edison did, right? So Edison early on uh, up in New Jersey and New York and some other places where they had basically a power generation station locally, and then they'd run things DC. So they just push power locally, but you got to create a lot more power generation stations to do that because you can't transmit it very far. Whereas with Tesla's idea and Westinghouse, it was, we're going to create this massive power generation station like Niagara Falls, and we can transmit the power thousands of miles and we can generate power for millions of homes, which is the solution. So AC is definitely the answer. The question what's going to happen now on uh, offshore wind is uh, if you're not going that far it may be cheaper overall cheaper to do things dc until you get on shore and then convert it to ac and transmit it out where it needs to go so there's a lot of work going on um, and a lot of discussions about do we create our own dc grid underwater and then make it ac uh, once it hits shore because it's just a lot less equipment on the on the turbines maybe Maybe. Remember when we talked to Firetrace, one of the issues was uh, transformers catching on fire and the turbines, right? Well, you don't really have a transformer if you have a DC system. So you may not have as many fires. Those those are the trade-offs that you make uh, between AC and DC today. I don't know the answer to this. What happens if a subsea line is severed, whatever? What, what happens to electricity underwater? This seems like this is like a question I should I should look on YouTube. But does it does it jump the gap? Does it just stop transmitting it? I mean, what happens there? Uh, well, if the voltage if voltage is high enough, well, it depends if the voltage is high enough, right? If the voltage is high enough, AC or DC, it's just going to arc over to the to the earth mm-hmm. and create a lot of hot water and that's what it'll do um and maybe make hydrogen out of it i mean it's going to be so much energy in a such a localized spot that you may start breaking away water molecules but the 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 safety aspects underwater aren't so bad as much as the cost of trying to repair it and fix it that's where nightmarish yeah that's a nightmarish right well if you're if you're way back oh my gosh way back when when they're putting in uh, some of the first transatlantic cables trying to get from the United States to Europe. What a big deal that was. Just being able to conceive of the ability to do that and then to do it was such a monumental task because there's just so many variables. There's just so many variables. And I think we're going to run into the same thing on offshore, especially floating wind. I think we're going to run into a lot of those obstacles in the first three, four, five years where... um, Surface roughness on the bottom of the ocean, uh, whales, something. I mean, there's gonna, <laughs> there's gonna be something. Those crafty cause... lobsters, they're always trying to get back at us, <laughs> right? <laughs> trying to take us down, <laughs> snip, snip, snip. Yeah, right. like, hey, this is a new challenge. Well, you know, we'll cut you in half. Uh, uh, for the longest time, when I've when I worked at a at uh, well, lightning technologies way back when, uh. One of the things for fiber optic cable was you needed a fiber optic cable had this armor on on it to prevent uh, animals from eating the cable underground, right? So it has this like animal uh, barrier built into the optic cable to keep critters out. You think, oh my gosh! I mean, that's that's only learned through the school of hard knocks. 
That's mm-hmm. the, that's how you find that stuff out is that it happens. And with like Ping, when we talked to uh, Matthew Stead of Ping, you know, they had problems with insects early on, which they didn't envision. That's what's going to happen when we start doing cables yeah. on offshore floating wind is that we're going to find something that we didn't know before. It's going to be attacking our cables and we're going to have to go in and spend a bunch of money to go fix them. And that's part of engineering. That's <laughs> the way it goes. Yeah, it just seems like one of the big complicated pieces with all this new wind. It's like, yeah, let's just keep throwing up more wind. And, and I'm sure a lot of people are like, whoa, 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 we got to put a lot of lines up. And, you know, there's some reporting that Houston, or uh, not in Houston, but reporting from the Houston Chronicle that ERCOT um, maybe doesn't have the transmission capacity to send all of the power produced by some other wind farms over in West Texas. To so East Texas, with, no. With, yeah, with, with no. these aging transmission lines, like... They need an upgrade quick. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's a grid. I mean, if you think of it as, I'm going to use Houston as an example because Houston is what, the fourth largest city in America? Houston's a massive area and requires a lot of power, right? And the way you feed that is you feed it when different sources coming from different directions. Um, But coming from so far away and driving all that power and trying to direct all that power to one location like Houston would be very difficult, I think, on the on the grid. And the grid may, may not handle it. And, you know, that's one thing about electrical grids is that they're designed to protect themselves from failure. So you really can't overload them without them coming offline and giving you a bunch of warnings before it happens. Uh, yeah, the grid is designed to protect the grid. Think of it that way. It does not, it's not designed to make sure your air conditioning works. It's, it's designed to make sure that it doesn't catch fire. That's a, that's what it's designed to do. Uh, so it's it's a it's interesting when you talk to people about the grid, like oh you know, we could just shove a billion more amps down the lines and satisfy. No, it's not there. No, there's limits to this stuff. <laughs> At some point, you ran out of capacity. It's just a capacity issue. You need more capacity, which means you're going to need more transmission lines. And I definitely think as we become more Tesla-ized, that we're going to need more transmission lines. And how is that going to work? How's that going to work? Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll be continuing to talk to talk about transmission lines and some of the monitoring solutions. We've reached out to a few companies um, to come on the show and talk to us about uh, monitoring of subsea cables, all these different things, because all this stuff needs to be kept close to the vest. Like we need to know if you have a you know severed line somewhere under the Atlantic Ocean. Which, <laughs> again, I can't think of like. You know, someone calls you and they're like, hey, Dan, we need you to go to the middle Atlantic Ocean. There's a line down. Can you fix it? It's like, oh, God, <laughs> click, hang up. But I mean, those are big, big problems that are complicated to solve. And so they need really robust solutions to hopefully, you know, mitigate the risk of them breaking in general. But then also knowing the moment it happens to get that thing patched up because it could be a huge, um, just a huge disruption to the grid. So. Yeah, more on this to come. But thank you for watching. That's it for today's episode of the Uptime Podcast. Be sure to check out Uptime Tech News. Again, that's our quick newsletter. Every week you'll get a quick blast with the new episode, uh, clips from the show, other great news from tech around the wind industry. So definitely check that out in the show notes. Subscribe today and you'll get us in your inbox anytime there's a new Uptime Podcast ready to listen to. So thank you from Al and all of us. And we will see you here next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. 
It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.